You may be seated. I'll just, I want to make two more uh, quick, excuse me, three more brief announcements about things uh, going on in the life of our church. Uh, as Felicity said, the women's Bible study will be meeting on Tuesday evenings at 7. Men, we are going to be meeting to study the Bible, 1 Thessalonians, at 6 a.m. at the church office. But that, don't let that deter you. Come. We'll enjoy our time together. There will be coffee. And we'll enjoy our time in the Word with one another. Um, also, for those who are workers and hope kids in nursery, uh, there's going to be a training this evening at 7 p.m. at the church office. Uh, we are really grateful for all of you who have volunteered to uh, get our hope kids and nursery ministries ready and running this fall. And we take these trainings seriously. They're important times for us to get on the same page, understand what we're going to be doing as we help our children grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. So I invite you to try to make that if you're able to tonight. There will be another one in September if you can't make it tonight. I know there were three. Um, mission groups. Mission groups will be starting also at the um, uh, uh, second week of September. So if you are not in a mission group or haven't been in one before, please come talk to me. We'll get you in one. All right. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we come to the Word. Father, as, as always is the case, when we come to your Word, we come with nothing that we can offer you but we do come hungry and thirsty for food and for spiritual nourishment. And so, Father, we ask that you would give that to us today. We pray that you would give us the gift of causing distractions to fade, the distractions of this past week, the distractions of this morning, the things that are on our mind for the week that's to come. Lord, would you please put those aside? And give our minds attentiveness. Make our hearts soft to your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we have made it to the end of our series in the book of Jonah. Uh, we did this uh, at the beginning six weeks ago, uh, and I want to do it again today. I want to read the whole book. I'll read the whole book for us. Uh, there's not many, not many books in Scripture that lend themselves really well to reading all at once. Jonah is certainly one of them. And so what I want to do is read all of it. It's not going to be on the screen. I just invite you to listen or if you have a Bible to read along. Uh, but I hope that as we, as we conclude our time in Jonah that we get a sense of this whole story uh, and that will kind of give us the context for what we need at the end as we uh, transition back out of, of Jonah. So with that, I invite you to listen along as I read the book of Jonah for us. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. 
Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, for you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet... You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days... And Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, 
By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is God's word. Well, there was a short story written by a man named John Bart in the 50s. It was called The Remobilization of Jacob Horner. The main, in the story, there's this main character named Jake, or Jacob, and he has these bouts of paralysis that come about when he recognizes uh, that every decision he makes kind of carries the weight of infinity on them. At any moment, he can choose to do whatever he wants. And that can cause any degree of, of paths that his life may take. So the consequences of, of, a, of a word that you might say to someone, even down to how he positions himself in a doctor's waiting room where he puts his arm, all of these things start to weigh on him to the point where he just becomes paralyzed recognizes that this weight of, of his decisions of infinity makes him unable to move. It's a very godless view of the world. Uh, now, Jacob goes to see this doctor, gives him all these psychological treatments, and one of the things he tells him, during one of these treatments, the doctor tells Jake this, that everyone is necessarily the hero of his life story. i say that again. Everyone is necessarily the hero of his life story. So in this doctor's view, in order for Jake to become unparalyzed, 
He needed to recognize that he was the hero of his own story. And everyone else around him was just kind of playing these minor character roles in the story of Jacob Horner. Now, Bart, the author, seemed to in some ways be suggesting that for a human being to flourish or even just to be functional, they had to believe that their own life story was all that matters, that they must recognize themselves as the hero. Now, I think what's interesting about that perspective is not that Bart was tapping into or creating some um, impressive new idea, but instead that he was essentially just tapping into this temptation that every single human being has faced since the Garden of Eden. To imagine that ourselves are at the center of everything. To interpret all of our actions, everything we do sympathetically, because we understand ourselves and we understand that we truly are the hero of our story. I think all of us probably have this temptation in our hearts to some degree or another. And looking at the story of Jonah, it's pretty clear Jonah believes this. He thinks that he is the hero of his own story. But the book of Jonah is written very clearly to tell us, as we just read, that that is not true. That is not true. When we place ourselves at the center of our world, when we lose sight of the fact that there is another who is at the center of everyone's story, then if we don't realize that, then we will wind up just like Jonah, who winds up in the pit, bitter, angry at God, angry that others are receiving God's mercy, angry that his life isn't going the way that he feels like he deserves. Selfish anger can cause us to shrivel up to the point where we're as small as Jonah in this story. Now, kids, uh, I've been asking you to, to answer questions during the, our sermons on the book of Jonah. So we've got one last one for you. So today, what I want you to see if you can figure out as we go through our story is this. If we are not the true hero of our story, then who is? You get that? This is the question. Who is the true hero of your life story? Now, uh, even though we just read the whole book of Jonah, we're going to primarily focus on the final verses of Jonah 4 today, verses 5 through 11. And as we do so, we're going to consider these verses from two vantage points. First, we're going to consider Jonah's view of God. Second, we're going to look at God's view of Jonah. Those will be our main points today. Jonah's view of God and God's view of Jonah. And it's my hope as we end our time in this book that we would be given the sweet gift of being forced to see that the story that each of us are a part of is a much, much greater hero than any one of us. So to our first point, Jonah's view of God. So if you've got your Bibles, take a look down again at verses 5 and 6 with me. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord, God, appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now Jonah has just had, uh, just before this passage, Jonah's just had this angry exchange with God, right? Back up in chapter 4, verse 2, where he, he starts using God's character to accuse God. Right? saying all these things as though they are evil things about God, that he's merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he goes out of the city, he sets up camp, and he seems to want to just wait there to see if Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And kind of imagine as he goes, you can, from the text it kind of seems like he's 
got this kind of adolescent pout on his face, right? Sitting with his arms crossed, just kind of waiting and hoping that maybe somehow Nineveh will be destroyed. Now, a couple bits of information to help make these next verses a little more understandable. The daily mean temperature in this part of the world is 110 degrees Fahrenheit. It's very hot. 110 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the mean temperature, which means it can get much hotter than that as well. So when God, and it's also very arid, right? There's not a lot of trees, not much water, so there's not a lot of ways to cool down in this 110 degree heat. So when God makes this plant grow up quickly to give Jonah shade, it's not a surprise that he's happy about it. In fact, verse 6 says that he's exceedingly glad for the plant. Remember that. We're going to come back to that, that Jonah was exceedingly glad for the plant. And then one very short verse later, uh, things take a turn for the worse for Jonah. So verse 7 and 8, read with me if you will. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And so Jonah, through, the, through God's appointing of this worm, loses, loses his shade in this very, very hot, desert-like place. Uh, and then God sends the wind. God sends the wind. The uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the, the Old Testament, says that it uh, calls this the scorcher. This wind, the scorcher, which sounds, is a great, great term for it. Uh, listen uh, to this description of this kind of wind from the New American Commentary. Most identify this wind as the Sirocco. When this wind is experienced in the Near East, the temperature rises dramatically, the humidity drops quickly. It's a constant and extremely hot wind that contains fine particles of dust. It contains constant hot air so full of positive ions that it affects the levels of serotonin and other brain neurotransmitters, interesting, causing exhaustion, depression, feelings of unreality, and occasionally bizarre behavior, which seems consistent with what we're seeing here. So right after Jonah tells God he's angry at God for showing mercy to the Ninevites, And sparing them from evil, what seems to be happening here is God begins ever so slightly to remove his mercy from Jonah, to let Jonah experience just a touch of what it is that he deserves and what it is he's wishing upon the Ninevites. So when he begins to get this this very small taste of what he himself actually deserved, as soon as he experiences this, he asks to die. Now you may be able to identify with Jonah in some degree here. That your life for some season in your life has been this very long series of disappointments that you can't really imagine God will be able to redeem. And those feelings, if they're left on their own and in the wrong environment, can fester, they can grow, and eventually they can bloom into that same rotten question that came to Eve when she was in the garden of Eden, to go back to the garden one more time. That question of, is God really good? When I take all of my life circumstances into account, this question, can I actually say that God is good? Now, Jonah's heart seems to have landed him on the wrong side of that question. It's the reason he could observe all these characteristics of God, 
right? That he's merciful, that he's loving, that he's gracious, that he relents from disaster and still somehow think that even though God is all of those things, that he is not truly good. So we can accuse God of using these things. How he can use these, that's how Jonah can turn those attributes into an accusation back in chapter 4, verse 2. So when Jonah gets to this point where he knows that God is all of these things, he decides that death is better than living in a world with a sovereign God who doesn't, in Jonah's mind, seem to be good. Who doesn't, in Jonah, from Jonah's perspective, does not seem to have Jonah's good in mind. That's a dangerous place to be. To fully acknowledge what God is like, to recognize what he's like, and to still decide that God is not good. For Jonah, this ends in anger and a desire to die. As we're going to return to in just a moment, these last words from Jonah are this angry, self-justifying exclamation at God, explaining that his anger is right and directing that anger towards God, saying, yes, I do well to be angry and I'm angry enough to die. After the service last week, a friend pointed out how hard it is not to laugh a bit at Jonah as he says these things, especially back in verse 3 when he kind of dramatically says it's better for him to die than to see the Ninevites live. I have to agree with that. It is dramatic. <laughs> betrays Jonah's very self-centered and prideful heart. But as we're going to see here, Jonah's experience isn't random. Of course it's not. God is teaching Jonah a lesson as he walks him through these things, as he walks him and gives him a little taste of what it's like to begin to lose God's mercy, to receive what it is that he actually deserves. And so he brings Jonah to this misery so that Jonah can see with clarity exactly what's going on in his heart. That's going to take us to our second point, and our last point, which is God's view of Jonah. So read verses 9, 10, and 11 with me one more time. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle. Now God returns to this uh, similar question he asked Jonah back in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? <laughs> this time, Jonah answers it. Do you, and God actually specifically asks this time, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah answers, yes. Yes, I'm angry that my plant died and I'm angry enough to die. Now, if we track Jonah's emotions through this whole book, this is part of why I wanted to read it all at once, um, it gives us a look at Jonah's heart. You may have noticed this. Jonah's emotions are, are kind of a betrayal of what's going on in his heart. He's happy when he is saved by the fish in chapter 2. No mention of the sailors. He's angry when the Ninevites repent and God doesn't destroy them. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, It displeased him exceedingly that they lived. Jonah was exceedingly glad when the plant gave him some shade. And when the plant dies and the shade disappears, Jonah is angry enough to die. Now that word exceedingly is, is, is repeated here with no mistake. It's meant to show us what really matters to Jonah. Who is the hero in Jonah's mind? 
Emotions are barometers often of our hearts, the things that we love. And so when we get angry, it's typically because something we love is being threatened. So we see this with Jesus. Jesus is, is angry when his friend Lazarus was taken by death. Jesus was angry when uh, the money changers turned the temple into this marketplace. And they began to prevent people from being able to worship God. Jonah, on the other hand, became angry when 120,000 people were spared destruction, and he became angry when he lost his shade. So you can see the theme here, right? Jonah's heart is entirely wrapped up in himself. That's all he cares about. That's all he cares about is his own experience. And if Jacob Horner's doctor was right, to go back to our opening story, if Jacob Horner's doctor was right, then Jonah, I guess, has the right to feel this, right? If Jonah is the hero of his story, then no one can really tell him that his anger is wrong. But that's not the case. And the merciful God, who isn't quick to grow angry, was too gracious and too merciful to let Jonah wallow in these feelings of self-pity without giving Jonah a chance to see his heart and to repent. And so God lifts the curtain finally explains to Jonah why Jonah's baking in the sun right now without his plant. And he shows Jonah that Jonah wasn't the hero of this story. And so God does this contrast, which we read a moment ago. He contrasts Jonah's reaction to the plant against Jonah's reaction to God sparing the Ninevites. And as so so often happens, when our hearts are are kind of brought out into the light of God's word, The sin and the selfishness is unmistakable. It's exposed for what it is. Jonah does not care about these men and women and kids who live in the city. God shows him this by giving him a plant and then taking it away. Now Jonah's affliction is one that each human being has. We're all tempted to be more concerned about our personal well-being and comfort than the well-being and spiritual well-being of other human beings made in God's image. We're all tempted to believe that we are really at the center of our story. And so this story is a reminder to all of us that all of us, to one degree or another, likely need, and even though it is difficult at times to wrap our head around it, we we have to recognize at the times when our hearts are tempted to make ourselves the center of our story so that we don't become bitter like Jonah. And when Eric came to preach to us back in July, he preached from Revelation chapter 5, which gives us this, this vision of these heavenly creatures surrounding God's throne. And they're asking, who is it that is worthy to open the scroll that has these seven seals that seems as though it contains God's plan for the history of the world? And the answer, of course, is that there's only one. There's only one who can open that scroll. It's King Jesus, the one who all of the history is about. So we are all part of this story of King Jesus, how Jesus came to rescue us. Jesus came to die for the sins of his followers, how Jesus was raised back to life, and how Jesus now sits enthroned in heaven. And now one day he will come back to judge all people, living and dead, and reign for eternity. So that's the hero of your story. Kids, the hero of your story is King Jesus, not us, not you, which is a good thing. Many commentators have have commented that uh, Jonah is meant to kind of be a mirror to ourselves. 
Like when we look at Jonah, we're meant to see different things in our own hearts as we watch him interact with his world and with God, which I think is, is, is helpful, but I might actually change that a tad to say it's, it's meant to be a magnifying glass. Everything in Jonah is big. It's magnified, right? Even just the words, it's great, exceedingly great, exceedingly glad, exceedingly upset. All of these things are magnified to very, very large proportions so we can see the reality of them, which I meant, which is, I believe, meant to make us see uh, that what we might think in our hearts are small sins, small prejudices, small bits of areas in our hearts that we have not given over to the Lord, small bits of bitterness at God. We're, We're meant to see that when you put the magnifying glass in those things, this is what it looks like. Jonah's story is what it looks like when these these sins actually look like played out in life. It unmasks that temptation for us to think that sins are small. They're not that big of a deal. Jonah shows us that is not the case. So this book of Jonah ends with a question, which you probably noted at the end of this book. It's it's kind of an odd question at first. God asks Jonah if he should not have pity on a city of 120,000 people and much cattle which is an interesting way to end the book. When, uh, when my wife and I were, were helping with the youth group many years ago, the women went through the book of Jonah, and that last line, and much cattle, became the catch line for the, for the year. It's an odd line. <laughs> now, odd as it seems, God wants Jonah to recognize that God loves and cares about his creation. All of it. He wants all of creation to play its proper roles within the ordering of creation. And so by ending with this question, God is forcing Jonah to ask it of himself. But then Jonah, the book of Jonah, is forcing us then to ask the question as well. The the, the question gets posed back to us. Initially, it was posed to Israel. To Israel, is there anyone, Israel, that God should not pity, even if you think they are your enemy? And that's a question that we now have posed back to us. T. Desmond Alexander comments that this final question at the end of Jonah forces us to ask whether we will be disciples of Jonah or disciples of Jesus. And I think that's a helpful question for us to ask ourselves. If we uh, remove ourselves from those we don't like or disagree with, like Jonah, go and sit and just kind of watch their lives and hope that they have to suffer the consequences for what they've done. If we refuse to forgive if we sit in bitterness towards God when he directs our lives in ways we don't like, then in some way we are acting as disciples of Jonah, wanting justice and judgment to be done on others while losing sight of God's mercy to ourselves, doubting that God is truly good. But if we enjoy the mercy that God has lavished upon us, recognizing that we are sinners, seeing the sin in our hearts, recognizing that for those who have called on the name of Jesus, God has chosen to place what we deserve onto Jesus. If we can recognize that mercy as a free gift that we don't deserve, that no one deserves, then it gives us the ability to enjoy it when God saves people, especially when God saves people that have hurt us. That is part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to enjoy the task of going and seeing people from all nations become disciples of Christ. Now, if human history remains consistent, there's always going to be tribalism, divisions among people, among the world. 
We're not going to see an end to divisions between people who dislike others, whether it's because we don't like their politics or their ethnicity or race or culture or even their morals. But as Christians, what we can do is we can treat those differences differently than our hearts want us to. Rather than making people who disagree with us enemies in our hearts, we can pray and ask that God would show his mercy to everyone and to show us in our own selves where we need that mercy as well. And perhaps the most wonderful message of the book of Jonah is that God shows mercy to those who need it. And everyone needs it. God shows mercy to those who need it. And it's my hope that if there's one thing that we leave this book with, it's that wonderful truth. That God shows mercy to those who need it. This book of Jonah shows us just how expansive this mercy is. God shows mercy to these superstitious sailors who uh, are pagan, but who eventually feared and worshipped the Lord. God showed mercy to this runaway prophet withheld death from Jonah when he wanted to drown and when he wanted to die out in the desert. God showed mercy to a city of people who certainly figuratively and, and perhaps even literally had blood on their hands from their war crimes. This is the mercy that God has offered to the world because the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to forgive the sin of anyone who repents. Whatever that sin may be, however deep or dark, Jesus' blood was enough to pay for it. And his mercy is greater than all of our sin. So let's pray as we end the book of Jonah. Father, we ask that you would bless us with the gift of clear views of our hearts. You would not allow our hearts to deceive us. When we face the temptation to believe that we're the hero in our lives, remind us not of our own personal sufferings or ways that we've been wronged, but of the suffering of Jesus on our behalf. Remind us, Father, of the mercy that you have shown to us. Remind us of the grace that we need and that has been given through Jesus. And we ask that you'd give our hearts wonder at what Christ has accomplished for us. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.